0: Take our seat. I invite you to turn with me in your worship folder. We're going to read uh, from Luke chapter 2 today. Uh, We'll read together. I like it when you read out loud. Let's, Let's read God's word together. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I love the story of Simeon. It, uh, It actually is after the birth of Jesus, obviously. It's at the 40th day when a child would be presented at the temple to be blessed. And Simeon was waiting there, and the scripture here tells us that there's this very unique Spiritual uh, dynamic in the life of Simeon that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and that he was moving in the Spirit. Uh, this is pretty awesome, right here at the beginning of the life of Jesus. That that uh, this man is moving in the Spirit of God, and uh, the the word says that when he saw Jesus, when he saw the child, he immediately blessed him as the Messiah. And he began to prophesy over him. Now, the reason I want to bring you to this message today for preparing for Advent, for this is the Sunday where we focus on peace. The reason I I want to kind of provoke you today with this message is because for some reason, Christmas is so well known. And the message in many ways, people have listened to and they kind of sing about it. And all this stuff, and yet it becomes very bland and very sickly sweet, and kind of warm and fuzzy. And when you read what Simeon has to say about Christmas, you realize it's not bland. It's not sweet. It's kind of shocking. Well, I want you to think about something with me. I know this print's a little small. I'm sorry about that. Uh, But... In New York City, almost every December there are there are numerous uh, presentations of Handel's Messiah all around the city. Uh, one December alone, there were 21 different productions of Handel's Messiah in the, in the city of New York. Okay, so Handel's Messiah, if you aren't familiar with it, is is basically uh, you know song at Christmas time. It's a beautiful masterwork of uh, of Handel back, he did it in 1742. The Hallelujah Chorus is the, the conclusion of Handel's Messiah, and, and since 1742, people stand up for the Hallelujah Chorus, and even in New York City, they stand up for the Hallelujah Chorus. And so this, uh, c- the critic from the New York Times was writing about Handel's Messiah, and I, I thought his report was interesting. He said, The ubiquity, you know, the everywhere presence of the Messiah may be depressing for various reasons. But it has the virtue of showing the durable force of a true masterwork. What we need is not an impeccably correct Messiah nor a crassly up-to-date one, but a reimagining of the work's elemental principles, a recovery of its shocking force. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, people get so numbed by the familiarity of something that the shock that is a part of it gets lost and so you're going to see that this <laughs> this critic of the new york times is not terribly biblically literate now those of us who went to seminary he makes a he makes a classic error instead of calling it revelation he calls it revelations which after years of seminary just annoys the heck out of me, okay? It's like when you call one psalm psalms, you just go to hell for things like that, you know? No, you don't. Sorry. It, I've just had the spirit of Gabe still up here. For some I mean, I He isn't even the room for me to pick on him, But All right, so this critic says, After all, how well do we really know the Hallelujah Chorus so warm and familiar? At St. Thomas Church, I was pa- paging through the Bible and came upon the passage in Revelations from which Hallelujah was taken. See, in that passage, the true Messiah, it turns out, wears a linen cloth drenched in blood, and the words, Lord of Lords, are written on his thigh. So in other words the Messiah came to bring conflict. He didn't come to bring a superficial peace. He didn't come to bring tolerance. He came to bring a sword. That's the message of Christian Christmas and Christianity. Is that there's this there's this incredible confrontation. Now let me stay with me as we Think about this together. When Simeon is prophesying in the Holy Spirit over the child Jesus, he's moved by the Spirit of God, and he says, This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. He will be a sign that is opposed. And he looks at Mary. And can I just tell you right here, Mary is representative of you at this moment. She's a representative of all believers and he says to Mary, a sword will also pierce through your own heart. And then says what his ministry will be is that he reveals the thoughts of many hearts, he exposes. So, in other words, the message of Christmas from Simeon's Holy Spirit interpretation is that Jesus has come to stake out a claim. That every inch of the universe he has claimed as his own. He comes to divide, to cause conflict, to pick a fight. (laughs) So what does it mean anyway to be king of kings and lord of lords? If you think about it, the term itself says that every other king must be subjugated for him to be the king of kings. I, I don't know many kings, but I doubt they give up their thrones easily. Or readily. So how can, in a sense, the message of Jesus also be the message that brings us peace? Well, he only brings peace by a sword. But it's a sword that pierces through your heart. And reveals the conflict in a way that's already there. So I want you to think with me about how Jesus brings peace through conflict. First, I want you to think about it in a global sense, all right? So this is the big picture sense. He comes actually to divide us. He causes conflict between us. He causes, Simeon says, the rising and the falling of many, and he becomes a sign that others oppose. So in other words, he didn't necessarily come to bring us together. He actually comes to polarize us. But. Now, you've got to go a little deeper than the superficial on this to understand what I mean by this and what Simeon means by this. It, it means that there are these two incredible polar opposites in Jesus. For example, the claim that he is king of kings and lord of lords is a pretty repulsive claim. It is outlandish. It is over the top in a way. I mean... That anybody would say, I'm the king of kings and I'm the Lord of lords. He even tattoos it on his thigh. In blood, it seems. So he claimed that you belong to him. That's one of his claims. He claims these things and at the same time, there's an attractiveness about him that caused people who would be repelled by his claim of king to be drawn to him because of his compassion and his mercy. It's a both and. But if you really listen to the message of Christmas and you actually get the shock value of it, you'll realize there's really no no middle ground. It's, It's impossible to be casual about Jesus. There are a lot of people who do. They desperately try to just be casual and say, I like his teaching. You know he's a good moral teacher you know if, i've even heard people say, well, if people followed his principles, it would be wonderful let, let me let me oppose that a minute. The first gospel ever written Mark was probably written somewhere around sixty a d or so so we're talking about less than thirty years uh, after the 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 death, the resurrection, and ascension of the lord jesus and and the gospel of Mark in a sense is is, is really reflecting what was going on as the ministry and message of, of Jesus was going forth by his disciples. And the Gospel of Mark is interesting because there's very little teaching in the Gospel of Mark. There's very little of Jesus' teaching. It is much more a book that, that answers the question, who does this guy say that he is? Who is this? And, and the book comes forth and it says... The winds and the waves answer to this guy. The the sick aren't sick when he's around. Blind eyes open, lame walk, the deaf hear. This is what Mark says. This this is who this guy is, and he has the audacity f- to forgive sin. See, the people, you know, the people in the Gospel of Mark aren't going. You know, I don't really believe who he is, but I kind of like his teaching. I think I'll follow him as a good moral teacher. I think maybe he has a philosophy for today. They don't say that. They're saying, who is this guy? And they're chasing him around, and they're bringing the sick. (laughs) I was up in uh, northern Uganda a number of years ago, and the Holy Spirit was moving in power throughout everywhere we went. And we were going through these little small villages and these little places. And people would hear that we were coming. And they would, they would, bring, they would bring their sick out on beds. Like they, would, they have poles and cot type things. And they bring their sick and they're carrying their babies. And they're carrying all of these people because they heard there might be healing. You see, they didn't care what my teaching was. They wanted to know what my power was. They wanted to know if the sick could be healed. They wanted to know if the blind could see and the lame could walk. They wanted to know if we could save them from physical death. You know, And I heard the Spirit as I was in that situation. He said, this is like the Gospel of Mark. Because the people, they didn't care what he taught. Tell you the truth. They just wanted to know, could you heal me? Could you deliver me? Could you make me different and better? See, there's a... There's this funny thing that we're trying to make this middle ground, and there's no middle ground. He's the King of Kings. He's the King over cancer. He's the King over diabetes. He's the King over death. He's the King over every single thing that you're afraid of. But you have to accept that that claim because Jesus basically is saying this. You know, whether you're going to go to heaven or whether you're going to go to hell, whether you're going to rise are you going to f- fall is going to depend on do you believe me and do you love me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you believe me and do you love me See in some ways you'll never really appreciate his teaching till you believe him first right. And you'll not ever really want what he has to say until you love who he is right. He demands and this This is part of the repulsiveness of Jesus, in a sense, to most people, is he demands your adoration, he demands your attention. And in some ways, when you hear the claims of Christmas and you hear the claims of Jesus, it's very easy to say, who does he think he is? Well, he thinks he's the king of kings. (laughs) Now, think about this with me as well, how? How could Jesus possibly get away with such repulsive or repelling claims? Well, it had to be because he's every bit as attractive as the Bible says that he is. You know, have you ever been with people who say outlandish things? I make outlandish claims. I remember as a kid, you come back from Christmas and you got a dog, they got a horse. You know, everything they got is better than what you got. I mean, you, you'd you say it, and they go, well, I got one better than that. And, and you, there's nothing about ad, outlandish claim people that appeals or is attractive. You're actually hoping something bad is going to happen. They're going to fall off the horse, <laughs> you know. Their better daddy than you is going to kill them or something, you know. something. I'm just kidding about that. You know. When someone makes outlandish claims, it tends to be a manifestation of insecurity, which tends to be a manifestation of a root of pride. Well, on the other hand, have you ever been around people, and and I love to be around people who just love to serve. Like they do everything for you. They make everything special for you. They make all kinds of things, make you feel at home, make you feel warm, make you feel very safe and all of that. And and even when you try to praise them, no, they, they, that's not what they want. That's not what they're looking for. The joy for them is seeing you happy. <laughs> I mean, a lot of moms are like that and dads are like that. And Grandparents are often like that. And when it's like that, you just want to be in those people's homes or in their lives because they're just so compassionate and yet so humble. But you never see such a person promoting his or herself. You never see them talking about themselves. I mean, it's fascinating in a sense that we have this amazing combination of two opposites in Jesus He makes these outlandish, somewhat repelling statements and claims about himself. But at the same exact time, he is the humblest, the most compassionate, the most beautiful, the most attractive person who has ever lived. Can you imagine being in the court of one of the great kings and letting little children come close? And yet the king of kings said, let the little children come to me for such is the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine being in a place where little children push adults out of the way just so they can be close to Jesus? He could not have been repelling and repulsive. He had to have been attractive and safe and incredibly inviting. Let me me hit you with one more thing on this. All of the claims of Christ, all of the All of the knowledge that we have of Christ comes through 12 monotheistic, trained Jewish disciples. They were trained, they were were developed in their theological understanding that that everything flows out of the Ten Commandments and the wording of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Israel. I, the Lord, am one God. There is no way that those guys would have changed their minds for anything less than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the one who was most humble and most compassionate because everything we know about Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior comes not from Gentiles but from Jews. But it's not just a global conflict that he causes. It's a personal conflict. It's very individual. Notice what he says, Simeon says. He says, the thoughts from many hearts will be exposed. Jesus is the exposer of the darkness of your heart. That makes you upset with him. Or anybody else who exposes what you don't want exposed. Who has your secrets. And deals with you according to knowledge, not according to your presentation. And he says to Mary, again, representing you, that Mary herself would experience a sword through the heart. I want to say to you that there will never be any peace in your life that has any substance to it. Or any sustainability to it unless first your heart has been pierced. And your secrets have been revealed. As long as Satan can continue to say, but if they knew this about you, they would not love you. They would not honor you. They would not respect you. As long as Satan has a secret place, a closet that is unrevealed in your life, you will not have peace because you have to protect that closet. Think about this with me. Every single one of us has what the Bible calls the flesh. And what I I love as a definition of your flesh and my flesh is it's the concentration of self-centeredness right at the center of your being. And because of that, you have a default setting when you feel challenged, when you feel in conflict, when you feel like you've got to overcome something. You have a default setting. And guess what? You're wired that way. But the problem is, That the way you're wired is only right one-third of the time. The way that you handle conflict, the way you address the challenges of life is really only effective one-third of the time. So two-thirds of your life, you're wrong. Some of you are like, why would I come today? See... Part of it is you can never really, friends, listen to me, you cannot have peace until you can admit that you're wrong. Until you can embrace your bankruptcy, until you can embrace your spiritual poverty, you will never have peace. But in order to do so, you have to face the conflict. This day, the Spirit of God has a sword to your heart. Now, the three ways that people address conflict in in a Uh, default setting, is one that you run away from it. You escape. The other is you attack it. You say, I'm going to be bigger than the conflict. I'm going to attack the conflict. And the the third way is paralysis. You do nothing. But that paralysis also leads to a certain stubbornness. In a sense, like you become the rock that all conflict has to go around. Either way with these, generally speaking, you're going to be wrong two-thirds of the time. Like, if you're an escape artist, the only time that's the right thing is is when God himself gives you release. And if you're an attack artist, the only time that's right is when it's a really small conflict and it's only as big as you are, which most conflicts aren't. Even though many of us think we're a lot bigger, we're the heroes, but really and truly we're the zeros. And the people that are paralyzed, it comes out of this place of, I need more information. I want to do what's right. I got to do the right thing. I got to, and, and so before long, the decision has passed you by because you have made no choice. So your no choice was a bad choice. Now, that's a great one if the conflict really isn't a conflict. But the problem is, it usually is a conflict. So when we're facing conflict and we're begging God to empower our flesh, he's not going to do it. As a matter of fact, he doesn't promise peace with absence of conflict. He promises peace in the face of conflict. Why is it that part of our identity as believers has to do with a phrase that says, you are more than conquerors unless there's something to conquer. And that which you are to conquer is usually bigger than your own abilities to conquer it. You cannot be an overcomer without something to overcome. But if you keep doing it in the flesh and keep doing it according to the flesh, the extremes of this we have seen in the lives of people. Like, for example, the escape artist wants to eventually wants to kill himself because that's the ultimate escape. And they will hear a voice that says, you'll be better off dead and so will your family. The attack artist eventually will murder someone, road rage, you know, kill, kill them out of your life, rip your clothes and you say "You're dead to me." And the stubborn person, the stubborn person, cannot grow because they already they're where they are. They're not going to move. They're not going to go anywhere. And so they're going to lose relationships, they're going to lose opportunities, they're going to lose everything because they're waiting for the perfect thing in an imperfect world. Even perfectionists realize they're not perfect. In some ways, the sword that comes to your heart says, if you're an escape artist, Jesus says, stay right where you are or the sword will get you. (laughs) To the attack artist, he says, I hold the sword, not you. Why is it that people attack? Because they think it's unfair. It's, un- it's the People have treated them in an unrighteous manner. Therefore, I have to get justice. Straight up flesh. My wife told me a, an illustration this week that, that fits with the attack artisan. Anybody that's religiously attacking says, in a way, trying to. Get to heaven in your own abilities and in your own power or trying to be righteous or good or good enough in your own power or whatever is like trying to swim from California to Hawaii. Some of you will swim farther than others because you're more religious than others or because you're better than others or you're a little more you know, moral than others. But the truth is you might swim farther, but you'll still drown. Because you can't swim to Hawaii. I thought that, come on, that should have got at least a little, ooh. I thought that was a good one. Come on, that I've been processing that one all week. Maybe that's why. Because I, you know, I keep seeing these people, I'm, I'm so angry. Everything's unfair. You know what? You're only going to swim maybe a few more yards than the others, but you're all going to drown. So yeah, let's attack Everything. Let's make everybody bad. But you know what? I only got maybe a yard ahead. I'm still drowning in the ocean. Because it's really hard when you're unrighteous to call out the unrighteousness of others. So what do we do with this? Well, there's really three things that Jesus calls us to in this passage. First is, when a sword is to you, You're being called to repent, to repent of your self-centeredness, to repent of your attack or to repent of your escape. This became really personal to me as I've been looking at this for about 23 years because I think about 23 years ago, I realized I tried to be religious. I tried to be a good pastor. I tried to be righteous and I had a double life. You know, I had the life that, that pursued the holiness of God and had a heart for the holiness of God. But, but I also wanted to be happy. And, and, and sometimes being obedient didn't make me happy. And, and my marriage didn't make me happy. And my family didn't make me happy. And so all my life I've always thought, because I, I love to face challenges, I thought I was the attack guy. But I started realizing this week I was not the attack guy. I was the escape guy. Because if I couldn't fix it, I ran from it. You know, I, I remember specifically, yeah, I like that. That's good. <laughs> that will help me not escape today. Uh, but I, Lisa was always righteous. Lisa, even, even in her self-centeredness, does the right thing. It annoys the daylights out of me. You know, and and she has an instinct for the right thing, which really annoys me. And so, what I began to think is she's taken over my life. And 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 so, instead of being a good husband, I was always running from her. I was running from her. I was running from, was running from my kids. If a church got too hard, I ran. I said, "Let me get another job. Let me get another place." And then when I when the sword came in nineteen. 89 or so, when the sword came, I wanted to die because I'm like, I just, I can't, I can't fix it. I can't do anything else. And I, I understood this process for many years, but I didn't have a word for it till this week. And it was the word escape is that I faced conflict trying to get peace by escape. If I couldn't fix something, if I couldn't change something, then I would just leave, or I would give it up, or I would resign, or whatever, or I'd want to. And when that, see, when you're like me, and Jesus starts putting the sword right at your heart, you realize you can't run anymore. But he's not doing it. He's not stinging you to hurt you. He's stinging you to give you capacity to be the person you always wanted to be. Because in my heart of hearts, I really wanted to be a good husband to my wife. In my heart of hearts, I really wanted to be a sacrificial, die for my kid's father. In my heart of hearts, I always wanted to be a pastor who was worthy of the name pastor. But in order for that to happen, I couldn't run from the conflict, I had to lean into the sword. Boy, you guys are getting really good at this. <laughs> Some of you need to stay for the third service. So listen to what Lewis, some of thoughts from C.S. Lewis. Really, peace can only come through the sting of repentance. Repentance is like an antiseptic. It stings, but it heals. Lewis said it this way, A serious attempt to repent and really to know one's own sins is in the long run a lightening and a relieving process. Of course there's bound to be a first dismay and often terror, again, when you get exposed, it's terrifying because you've you've built a whole conflict avoidance center. OK, there is bound to be a first a dismay, often terror and later great pain. Yet that is much less in the long, long run than the anguish of a mass of unrepentant and unexamined sins lurking in the background of our minds. It is the difference between the pain of the tooth about which you should go to the dentist and the simple, straightforward pain, which, you know, is getting less and less every moment when you have had the tooth out. Are you hearing me? So here's what separates Christmas from anything else, in a sense. And it's the heart of Christianity, It. Jesus is only for people who realize that we're not good people. God treats believing sinners as if they have done everything that Jesus has done and have suffered everything that Jesus has suffered. To repent is to receive the sword in the soul, to admit that you cannot, that you have a concentration of self centeredness that you cannot change, reform, or rehabilitate. Repentance is a sword wielded not by a warrior, but by a surgeon. Real repentance. Lord Jesus, I didn't believe that your love was enough. The sin then that's behind the sin is basically every time you choose disobedience, you're saying, Jesus, you're not enough. Well, if that's the sting of repentance, the other sting of the antiseptic would be called obedience. And this is I don't know how we lost this because we're, maybe because we have been focusing on forgiveness and healing and things like that. But it's forgotten that real peace doesn't come to disobedient people. If, if, if you're living out of the will of God and you're living out of alignment with the spirit and if you're living a lie, you will get the fruit of that life. And the fruit of that life is being unsettled, discontent unhappy. There's not a single believer who can be happy in disobedience. The only time real peace comes is when you absolutely know I have heard the word of the Lord. I am living in the word of the Lord and I am trusting in the love of the Lord. You know, but there's a cost to obedience. So maybe that's why we we choose not to pay it. The road that Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, leads you on is a road of conflict. <laughs> you know, it was great when I decided, okay, I'm going to stay in this marriage. It was great when I decided I'm going to love my children. Guess what? They didn't change. It was exactly the same situation. Lisa still knew what was right, and it wasn't what I wanted. My kids wanted things from me that I didn't want to give them. My job did not go the way I wanted it to go. None of the things circumstantially changed. And in some ways they got harder. Because I had made a promise that I had no back door. That I had no escape. That I was not going to run. That I was going to lean into the sword instead of run from the sword. And what I found in that obedience though... Is I found a peace in the midst of conflict. I found an anchor for the soul in the midst of the waves. And what happened, I'm not there, but the capacity and the character that I would never have had. A character I did not get raised in. A character that did not happen in my home. But a character that happened in the presence of God, in the presence of the Spirit, because I said, I'm not leaving. No matter how hard it gets, this is where I am. And I kept thinking, okay, the church is going to grow. Well, this week, this week, that week there were 35 people. The next week there were 30, you know. That kind of thing was, was what was happening. And I kept saying, well, Lord, I'm leaning into the sword. I'm leaning into the sword. And this is fairly personal. It's kind of making me cry. Sorry about that. I cannot tell you how many streets of Atlanta I walked with Lisa and prayed and I sowed tears into those streets asking God, will you not do here revival? I was in the kind of an inner city area of Atlanta and asking God, will you not raise up a church here? Will you not use us to raise up a church? And I I wept over, over people who lost their faith. I wept over people who left the church, all these kind of things just kept happening, but we stayed in it, and we stayed there, and we kept saying, Lord, are you not going to do what we're asking you to do? It feels like what we're asking is your will. Will you will you, not do it for us and for yourself? And nothing happened, nothing. Eventually, uh, we were doing a 40-day, we were doing a 40 days of prayer, just Lisa and me, three, four hours a day, sometimes an hour, however much time we could put to it. We're, Intensively praying. And we're praying for Atlanta. We, were, we, we had nothing about New City, New York on our radar. I get a call from Ron Walborn the day into, or two days into praying for vision and breakthrough in Atlanta. He goes, There's a church open in New City. I think you should think about it. I said, No, I'm praying for Atlanta. <laughs> he says, uh, Let me put your name in. And I said, Okay. Then I get a call from an intercessor who says, You're drying up in Atlanta. I think you need to move to New York. I'm like, I don't even know New York. Come on. There's no reason for that. And, and so here we're intensely praying, and we're getting these words about a completely different position than we were praying for. And then we got a call to New City and we came up here. It was the coldest day of the year. I don't know why anybody would recruit a pastor when it's freezing cold outside. We stayed at the Comfort Inn, which was that night a sex orgy galore going on all around us. I think it was all intended to scare us back to the south. And we say, this is where God has called us. (laughs) And within the first year, everything we prayed in Atlanta happened here. Not by our doing, but God's doing. The reason it's so personal and I'm telling you this is the sting of obedience in the short time, short term, feels like conflict. But in the long term of staying in that place of obedience and alignment and trust and faith and just remembering that simple claim of Jesus, he's the king. And he says, I I have a claim on your life like no one else does. And it's not for you to be the king, but for me to be the king. It's not your sword that you're wielding because you're not a savior for anybody. It's his sword. And it's whether or not you're leaning into that and saying very simply, Lord, I believe you. Lord, I love you. That's the piercing. He begins to cut away everything that doesn't love him. To obey is the way of the sword in the short run, but in the long run, it's the way of peace. The last thing is is for there to be peace, there has to be glory. Glory says he says this this is a message to all peoples It's the light to the Gentiles and it's the glory of his people Israel you know have you ever thought about you ever thought about what glory is glory is a heaviness glory is a weightiness it's it's it means something is precious but it also means something has substance that it's not here today it's not gone tomorrow the wind can't blow it around circumstances can't move it it's It's immovable in its beauty. It's immovable in its its splendor. And the weight of it makes you have weight. So that when the storms come and the conflict comes, you have weight and nothing can blow you down. Nothing can move you. Here's Here's what Simeon said. My eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen the glory. Now, in the short sight, think about this with me. It's nothing but a baby. I'm sure Jesus was cute, but, you know, just a baby. It's a 40-day-old baby. But Simeon has prophetic sight. (laughs) See, this whole thing, this, this whole aspect of the virgin birth and of Jesus not being born of just uh, a natural way, but it's in this supernatural way, is so essential. But it was prophesied hundreds of years before him. But it's funny when it was prophesied. There was a king of Judah. His name was Ahaz. And he was a wicked king. He wasn't a good king. He was, didn't love God, didn't serve God, didn't kick out all the idols out of the land. And he just wanted, he wanted power. And he wanted position. And he was competitive with the other kings. So he gets into a fight with the king of Syria, and gets in a fight with the king of Israel. So he's losing the fight. It's two-on-one, which makes sense that he would lose the fight. He's losing the fight. So finally he turns to God, okay? And he says, I need something from you, God. You know, in his hour of conflict, he goes, I need something from you. I need a word. And the word that comes is a virgin will have a son. I can imagine Ahaz going, thanks, God. Who else? You know, somebody else. Have a word. because." How in the world does that help me in my war? I need nuclear armaments from the future. You understand? In short sight, almost everything God says to you and everything God asks of you, it all seems irrelevant. I mean, how is it that this baby child is so important? Well, because Simeon sees prophetically. He says, This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. This is what I was looking for. In other words, what he sees is not a baby. He sees his treasure. He sees what is ultimate. He sees what is worth living for. I think it's a picture. I think it's a a prophetic picture that see, in your life right now, you're like Simeon. You're waiting. You're looking. You're aligning with repentance. You're even saying, even my good has to be repented of because everything has to be in alignment with Jesus as my king and as my Lord. There's no other alignment but alignment with the one who has a claim on my life. Everything right now is getting into that place of obedience, even obedience when it hurts, when others reject you, when others think you're crazy, when others think you're ridiculous and say you're intolerant, but you say, I'm going to be obedient to the king. then you start to realize in the midst of the storm you have a weight you have a glory the storm may not change you know it might still be a financial storm when you leave here today it might be a friendship storm or a relationship or a job storm it may be all of those things but you leave here and you say but i have gold in my soul I have weight, I have something precious, I have something ultimate. You could take everything else away from me and I would still have my treasure. I would still have what is ultimate to me. And let me tell you, that's the only way you get to have peace. That's the only way you get to have peace. But take it one more step. I think it's a picture. Simeon looked into Jesus' eyes and he saw what he had always been looking for. This is a picture that whatever you've given up in this life, whatever you've sacrificed for the sake of the king, when you look into his eyes, you're not going to go, you got some spleening to do to me. You're going to look in his eyes and you're going to say what Simeon said. This is what I was looking for. This is the peace. This is the joy. This is the love. This is the hope that I was living for. Can I, can I just push you one more? I, I have the mic, so you have no choice. But I'm going to push your soul just one more thing. When you see him, you will see him sight. Right now is the only time you can give him sightless faith. The scripture we read earlier said, of his government there will be increase. And the one who governs is a mighty God. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the prince of peace, the everlasting father. Think about that. That's the one sightless government. But you saying, in my heart I see it. In my heart I submit to it. My heart has been pierced with His sword. Will you stand with me? Will you close your eyes for just a minute? Jesus said, My peace I give to you not as the world gives it, So really and truly, when he's saying, I give you peace, it's not a peace that's apart from his person. And it's not a peace that's apart from his presence. And as long as there's conflict at the center of your being as to who is the king, you will not have peace. The flesh is basically you saying, I'm the king. And even making God get in line with your righteousness and your morality and your sense of fairness. At the center of your flesh could also be that part of you that says, I just want to play. I just want to have fun. I just want to have no conflict and just be free and carefree. Or it could be that there's just a stubbornness right there. That what's happened to you is you've become unable to move, paralyzed. Stuck, even though your savior savior whispers love to you, he whispers, Come with me. Let me just say that part of maturing and part of growing up in faith is to realize I need wisdom. And wisdom is not mere knowledge, wisdom is beginning to understand how to apply truth so that you live well. Jesus said. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light Jesus said I came that you might have life you might have it abundantly yes he makes this extreme claim king of kings but he's the most attractive most drawing most compassionate most humble most holy righteous one and he's the only savior that there is would you say uh, test out these words with me Lord I lay down my need to escape my need to attack and my stubbornness I yield myself as an act of my will my King, king. to my Lord, Lord. who is the King of kings kings. and the Lord of lords. And And I tattoo your name name on my heart, my My King, my My Lord, Lord. No no other. Okay, I gave you words to try out. You'll have to decide if they're your words. But I can tell you this. Your worst enemy in the room is not Satan. It's you. It's your flesh. It's that concentration of self centeredness in the middle of your being. And the only way it goes, and the only way you get peace, is if a sword goes right through it. Lord, do your work here. For your sake, we ask that you do it, but also for our sake. We're tired of being superficial people. We're tired of having little peace in a world full of conflict. We look for the substance of your glory. You are the ultimate. You are the treasure. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Look, there's, there's some of our leaders who want to pray with you. They would love to like make this a big day spiritually for you. Please come forward, pray with them. Thank you for being here. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you for the way that you.